Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. It's one of the most idyllic spots in the world. It's iconic to South Florida. And for a significant part of its modern history, it was under threat from development and drainage. Yet Everglades National Park survived. And if you heard our episode last month, in December of 1947, President Harry S. Truman dedicated the park that would eventually come to define Miami and surrounding regions. However, it was not destined for success. Today, we're going to learn a little bit more about Everglades National Park and specifically the people who were critical in making it happen. And we're going to do that by talking to Dr. Chris Wilhelm from the College of Coastal Georgia. He wrote a book entitled, From Swamp to Wetland, The Creation of Everglades National Park. We are here today with Dr. Chris Wilhelm. Uh, Dr. Wilhelm is a associate professor of history at the College of Coastal Georgia, and the topic of our discussion today is his work on the Everglades, specifically the book From Swamp to Wetland, The Creation of Everglades National Park. Uh, Dr. Wilhelm, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Thank you for having me. So I, I want to talk about the book um, in detail because I, I really enjoyed reading through it, but I want to talk a little bit about you. Um, you're from Miami. What's your connection to the Everglades personally, before we get into the research part of it, but just your personal connection to the Everglades? Yeah, so, you know, I grew up in Miami, and, you know, I think when you when you sort of grow up, or even, even you know, when you're in your teens or 20s, you, you, you tend to not go out to the Everglades very <laughs> much. I, I suspect that's probably still the case. A lot of people, you know, we you don't go out there. Um, especially not in the summertime when it's really hot and muggy and wet and there's mosquitoes everywhere. And so I, I sort of always, you know, knew there was this swamp out there and I was always really interested. You know, I remember being a kid and we would drop, we would go on road trips and drive and you would see these tree hammocks and it's this, you know, fascinating place, you know, what, what's in there, you know, you know, it's this mysterious place. Um, but, but I never really spent a lot of time there until I started working on this project. And, and when I started working on this project, I, I started spending a lot more time in the Everglades and, and going there. And I, you know, went on some camping trips in the Everglades and I would, I would go every year when I came down and I, I did some research in the park and really just got to know the area much better through my research and through, and through spending time there and really came to love it even more. And so now it's a place that I really sort of closely identify with. Um, but it's sort of, and, and this is something I think that the people at the time in the 30s, 40s in my book understood, it's sort of a place that you have to know to love. It's, it's not something that's easily appreciable, you know, right away. 
it's really a place that the more you learn about it, the more you'll love it. And the more you learn about it, the more you can enjoy it. You know, don't go in the in the summer, go in December. And, and you know, you, you sort of learn how to enjoy it. So, yeah. So you, you, you develop this personal connection. It's not something that necessarily comes naturally, but you, you have been writing about the Everglades, not only in this book, but, but in the course of your historical analysis and, and, and big focus of your, your research. And, and the book is kind of the political interactions that are required um, for the park to come into existence. And so what, as a, as a professional historian, what attracted you to the political historical analysis of the park? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's sort of, uh, you know, very much what the book is, um, you know, sort of looking at, at the politics of it. What, what drew me to it was sort of this, this sort of idea of, you know, why, why you know, in, in a way it doesn't make a lot of sense. Why is there a national park in the Everglades? Because, you know, for a very long time, people tried to drain the Everglades and destroy it. And, and, and people, I think when you think, you think of these geological monuments and the Grand Canyon and Yosemite and the Everglades, and, and, and this was true at the time when people were trying to get it created, it didn't seem like a good candidate for national park status. People didn't really appreciate it. And I was really sort of, I, I think if you told a lay person, they would probably guess that the park was created maybe in the 60s or 70s. You know, I think when, when modern environmentalism comes along, then people start to appreciate landscapes like the Everglades much more. And, and when I started looking at it, this is mostly happening in the 30s and 40s. And so it seemed kind of improbable. It seems like an outlier, like, oh, these people are talking about environmental ideas and protecting swamps and protecting alligators in the 1930s and 40s, decades before modern environmentalism. And so sort of the, the improbable nature of this is sort of what drew me to the project and, and trying to understand how, you know, these politicians, many of whom, you know, didn't care about nature and cared much more about tourism and economic development, how they were convinced to help create this park. So it's sort of the improbable nature of it is what really drove my interest. So as you get into um, your your workings on the book, and I, I could tell, uh, I, you know, I... I I, I do a little bit of digging myself in, in your article in the Journal of Southern History about conservatism and the Everglades, and you kind of touched on it there because the book goes into it in further detail. The idea of these unlikely figures that kind of jump in and, and play these important roles in the formation of the park, I, I, I'm going to break it into three categories and come back to that second category in a second. Uh, but I want to talk first about Ernest Coe because I, I find Coe to be Fascinating, um, and and your writing of Co in the book is, I, I think, uh, fantastic. I, I, are both these statements true? One, there is no Everglades National Park without Ernest Co, and two, there would be no Everglades National Park if Ernest Co continued to work on the park uh, until his death. Yeah, I think absolutely that's the case, and and Co is is just fascinating. Thank you for that uh, praise. I mean, I, I, I'm, I, I hope I did him justice because he's such an interesting figure. 
you know, he's not a native Miami uh, resident. He moves to Miami, I think it's 1926, when he's 58 years old. And he's trying to be a landscape architect during the Florida land boom. This is going to be like his retirement career. And the boom goes bust. And he just falls in love with the Everglades. And I mean, I'll tell you, I've read, I read, <laughs> I don't even know, thousands and thousands of pages he wrote. And I mean, he just was so out there and so effusive in his praise of the Everglades and so kind of crazy. I mean, he would write these like eight, 10 page letters and send them to like 50 people and, you know, constantly nagging everybody. And he absolutely got the whole thing started. Um, and, and I sort of say in the book, and this is actually Marjorie Stoneman Douglas uh, calls him a prophet. She writes an article on him in the 60s and calls him a prophet. And that's sort of exactly what he was. He was this sort of prophetic figure who really created this movement for the park. But at the same time, he, he was a prophet and prophets don't compromise and, <laughs> and prophets are not good at, you know, the business aspects of these things and failed completely to compromise on his vision and, and sort of failed completely to acquire any lands when, when, you know, when that was made his task and wasn't really good at, I mean, this guy just spent money without any regard. So I mean, he bankrupted himself fighting for the park. And, and so he had a great prophetic vision for what the park could be. And I think that's really important. I think you need people like that, the visionaries. Uh, but then you also need the sort of more practical minded business people to come along and sort of actually get the thing to the finish line. So that second group, because uh, it does seem like with Everglades National Park, Co. kind of spins cloth out of thin air in terms of yeah. getting the ball rolling in the 30s. But there's a long period of this kind of glacial, pardon the like National Park pun, but this glacial pace of, of some advancement, some falling back, different business interests, different landowners pop up and, and present different problems, and Co. doesn't want to move. And then it seems very quickly in the 1940s and kind of the early to mid-1940s that there are three really important figures. One of them is the man who kind of takes Coe's place and puts his shoes on in John Pennekamp. And the two other figures are are governors of Florida and one becomes a senator, Spessard Holland and Millard Caldwell. How does their entrance into this kind of middle act of the play change the momentum, change the dynamic, and, and potentially change the part from what Coe envisioned to what it eventually becomes? Yeah, so Coe is, 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 starts in 28, and, and uh, he gets the park sort of approved in principle in 34. And then between 34 and 37, he's sort of flailing around and, and fails to acquire lands. And then it's totally dead from 37 to 41. And then Spessard Holland becomes governor in 41, and sort of restarts it. And there's some obstacles related to sort of oil drilling, which doesn't really go anywhere. But, but uh, when, when, when Millard Caldwell becomes governor, the, the oil drilling is sort of a dead issue. And, and Pennycamp and Caldwell and Holland together just totally come in and they just really get this done. And I think part of it is they, you know, had a business-minded approach. 
Um, you know, Co is this visionary, but they were practical and, and wanted to get it done. Uh, Penny Camp in particular, just he wanted to get this done. This was a thing that I think a lot of Floridians had wanted and had been expecting. Uh, and, and, and Penny Camp really understood how to get everyone on board and how to organize people and how to get the important constituencies involved. And then, and then Holland and Caldwell. Holland is probably one of the most important uh, Florida politicians of the 20th century. He really puts his weight around it as governor, and then he's he's a senator right after he's governor all the way uh, until I think 1972, and he is consistently supporting the park. And so the politicians put their weight around it, uh, behind it. And what really clinches it is the fact that after World War II, Florida is just raking in the dough in terms of the the tax receipts. Um, You know, during the Depression, obviously the state has no money. Uh, During World War II, the the state's doing better. And then when the war is over, there's just this huge expansion of Florida. I mean, that's really when... The, the Florida we know is sort of created. It's this post-World War II invention. And and so the, the, the tax monies are just filling up the coffers. And in a way, the state doesn't even know what to do with the money. <laughs> and uh, they, you know, Penny Camp sort of hatches this plan. He says, look, you guys have so much money. Just give us $2 million and that's what we need to create a nucleus park that the park service will approve of. And that would have been, I mean, this was this sort of conundrum of how do we get the land for the park? Cause a lot of this land was privately owned was this thing that co had been grappling with forever and never got a solution to. It, it was inconceivable that the state would just appropriate that money in the thirties. And then in 1947, it's like the first bill they pass in the legislature that session. There's not even any debate on it in the Senate. It just flies through, no big deal. No, no one even, it's not even a big deal. It's two, two million bucks is nothing in 1947, whereas in 1938, it would have been totally inconceivable. And, and so these politicians are sort of making a bet in a way, on the Everglades. They're saying, look, we can put $2 million into this project and get this national park. And and that national park will help us continue to build modern Florida. Um, I, I sort of say in the book that, that they see the park as a way to redefine Florida and, and sort of to make it into the Sunshine States. They don't use that language because that's not a term that people are using yet. But the idea of Florida as this tourist destination, this idea of, of modern Florida, not this state that's sort of you know a backwater, but this modern state at the center of America. Um, and, and I think they see the park as a key element of that. Um, even if a lot of tourists don't go to the park, and, and even if it doesn't give you an, an, as much money as Co thought it would, it, the park still is this symbol. It's this approval of Florida. It's this it's this national seal of approval for Florida tourism, and it sort of creates all these additional Florida tourist attractions as well, centering around like alligator farms and airboat rides and this sort of tropical nature. Uh, and, and so they really see it as this, this key element in the reshaping of modern Florida. 
And to get there, they do have to compromise Coe's vision. Like, like you said, they have to reduce the park's boundaries. They have to appease some powerful landowners. They have to, they have to compromise. They have to, to make concessions. And, and so Coe is actually you know, very angry at, at these concessions and almost doesn't attend the uh, dedication of the park in 1947. And I think Penny Camp gets him to go at the last minute. Um, and so that's sort of the this, this second group of people, the second phase, uh, these sort of more practical people compromising Coe's vision. I think what's great about the, the story, how it eventually ends, is that eventually a lot of Coe's vision is fulfilled. You know, it's, it's not necessarily part of Everglades National Park, but just to give one example, you know, Coe is like obsessed with this area in Key Largo and these coral reefs in Key Largo, and he wanted that part of the park. And that never was going to happen. But what John Pennycamp did later, uh, you know, in 1959, was he got those keys preserved as a state park, which now bears his name. So Coe's vision, you know, you had to compromise it, but it was such a compelling vision that in the long run, other people have sort of picked up that torch and carried it on. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. 
You mentioned a couple of things there that I really enjoyed about kind of the narrative of this story. And this book is is a you know a serious historical analysis, but there's also a real solid narrative. I have to say the first thing the the manner in, and you highlighted it the manner in which the state approves that appropriation is as much of a jaw dropping turn of events in a book like this that I can imagine because the whole book is premised upon Ernest Coe banging his head trying to make pennies appear out of the sky to get this money and then it's just like oh well there it is the state's just gonna <laughs> yeah, just a complete change in attitude because of all these external macroeconomic and macro political factors that exist it's really fascinating and the second thing it is you know i think the quote is that you know no one's a prophet in their own land right and you you kind of mentioned co as the prophet and he was a, a prophet in in our time and being able to see it, but but that vision, like you said, it it what it didn't come together in his time, but it did come together. And and Pennycamp State Park existing in Key Largo is is the biggest proof of that. And and again, it's funny because a lot of the figures we mentioned in this middle period here are not these rabble. Pennycamp is is as you allude to in the book, kind of drafted into the service of the park by the knights. And and you know uh, Holland and and um, you know the, the, these political figures in Florida are conservatives. But as you allude to, and, and it's something I wanted to hit, hit on because I know this is a right up your alley. This Sunbelt conservatism that exists in places like Florida and kind of through what we refer to as the the New South in the the kind of forties, fifties, and sixties. Um, how much did that change in conservatism that? existed then and, and really would kind of be foreign to a lot of people as we understand modern conservatism. How important was that in getting this over the line? Yeah, so, I mean, that's that's really central. You know, you, you have these, you know, these politicians like Holland and Caldwell who, by their time, were very conservative, conservative on issues related to race. Uh, they were anti-labor union, you know, very solidly anti-communist and, and in general, very opposed to the federal government intervening in state affairs. Um, there's a there's a controversy in the er, in the early 50s, the Tidelands controversy. And Holland plays a key element in this where he passes this bill that gives offshore waters back to the states so that they can control oil drilling in the states. And he makes the statement saying, I will always protect states from the federal government. And yet here he is, you know, welcoming, <laughs> giving the federal government huge chunks of land in the Everglades to create a state, to create a national park. And so, and, and people at the time, there's a, there's a couple letters in the book where people note this, like, this is so contradictory. You, you, you say you're opposed to the federal government intervening in state fairs. And, and yet here you are, you know, trying to create this park and take take money away from the state and take land away from the state. But but Holland was enlightened. He, he had a enlightened self-interest and, and a, an enlightened self-interest for Florida. And he understood that if you protect nature you can create economic benefits. Yeah, I think too often we sort of think of these things as in conflict. You can either protect nature or grow the economy. And Holland really saw those things as tied together. This was an opportunity to protect Florida and grow the economy at the same time because the reason people come to Florida is, is a lot of times the environment. It's, it's nature that draws people in here. It's like nature is, is the golden goose. 
And uh, you got to protect that golden goose because you want to keep getting those eggs. You don't kill the very thing that brings tourists and snowbirds and retirees to the state. So Holland really embraces, uh, uh, you know, a, a lot of these ideas and Caldwell and others as well. And it's, it's very central to the way they're thinking about uh, nature and, and politics and the role of governments. And I think you're right that, that I think there are a lot of conservatives today that, that I, I think that changes. You know, I'll say this. Uh, Richard Nixon is one of the greatest environmental presidents we've ever had in this country. Yep. And also a very staunch conservative. But he, he created a lot of those things. And he did it because he understood that they were popular and that they could create economic growth. I think in Florida, that tradition usually continues. I mean, it's, it, to me, it's really striking – not all governors, but many governors, you know, recent governors of the state going going all the way back to Jeb Bush have have tried to be or, or at least tried to appear to be a friend of the Everglades. Um, I think it's 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 usually very popular politics in Florida to be pro Everglades. And, and so I think you have seen uh, many very conservative governors very much embrace protecting the Everglades and ex- expanding uh, the, the government's role in protecting nature in Florida because of that same thing. They understand that the nature of Florida is central to the economic success of the state. You know, you mentioned that the, the title of the book is From Swamp to Wetland, The Creation of Everglades National Park. And, and the, the title of the book really tells the story. It's about changing the way in which this area of land is thought of in order to kind of fit it into a box that will allow the National Park Service to pick it up, but also create it in a way that empowers Floridians to see the value of it as it is rather than what it can become, right? And and I think that your, your analysis there where being anti-Everglades is not really a, a tenable political position in Florida. You know, people may try to nibble around the edges and try to figure out ways to have their cake and eat it too, but it, it, it has gone from this, this chunk of land where, you know, Napoleon Bonaparte Broward is, is doing everything he can to drain it dry to where we have now, you know, billions of dollars of restoration that Floridians wholeheartedly um, endorse. Um, and, and a big part of that is not only the creation of the park, which um, you were very helpful in kind of the reason I reached out to you at first is our episode last month was about the dedication of the park. But as you were correct to point out, which I did, did not highlight correctly in my episode, the park was actually established in June, but any fool having a big event in the Everglades in June <laughs> would be uh, crazy. Um, so even before the dedication, the, the third figure that I wanted to talk about that I think is really important to the park is Daniel Beard. Um, who takes over as superintendent in August of 47 and remains in that position for almost 11 years, I believe the longest tenured superintendent of the park. Um, he really is, is key in, in finding the balance, and the word balance comes back a lot when we talk about the park, the balance between making this a national park that fits in the National Park Service's framework, but at the same time making it accessible and making it something that can be connected to by South Floridians and and the nation at large. How important is Beard in kind of threading this needle? Yeah, Beard Beard is a, is great. I mean, he's a he's someone that I wish I could have written more about. Um, he comes to the Everglades in thirty seven and and does this study called uh, 
wildlife reconnaissance, which is just an amazing document. And then he's put in charge of a wildlife, there's a wildlife refuge in, 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 in what becomes the park from 44 to 47. And then he's the first superintendent. And, you know, he was a wildlife biologist by trade. So he understood completely uh, the, the mission of the park, this biological mission. But he also understood that if you don't create a constituency for the park, that it's going to have problems down the road. Um, and so he understands that you have to make the park accessible. You have to create things uh, for tourists to do. You have to cater to tourism to some extent. He wrote a lot in Wildlife Reconnaissance about how in the Everglades, you can cater to tourism and the tourism in the Everglades is not going to negatively impact the landscape in the same way like tourism in Yosemite or Yellowstone will. Because frankly, the Everglades is, is more hostile. It's, it's, it's wet. People tend to not like getting wet. <laughs> it's a very <laughs> simple way of putting it. Um, but, but Beard really did do a lot of things to, you, you know, the parks created in 47. And I think I write in the book something like, you know, yeah, that, the, the parks created, but you don't really have a park until you have the boundaries being adequately policed. They had to make, they had to make sure people weren't hunting in the park anymore. They had to get rid of poachers. They had to create infrastructure for tourism. They had to, to create policies. And, and you know, so there's a lot of things that Daniel Beard had to do on the ground that were concrete to make it a functioning unit. And he did a brilliant job of really balancing, you know, protecting the biology, which is the central thing in the park. But he also understood, you know, you, you, you want the purpose of, of protecting the biology is partly for the sake of the biology, but it's also there to help inspire us and to help us sort of rethink who we are as humans and to help us rethink what our relationship is with nature. And I think he understood that. And so he did a good job at, at creating, working to create tourist opportunities that were not intrusive uh, and that were very popular and beneficial. So if, if you go to the Everglades today, the, the main thing to, to, to the, the first thing you do is you go to Anahinga Trail, which is just a great spot for wildlife viewing. That had been a state park, and Beard very correctly understood that that could continue to be a major site of tourist activity. And, and so Beard really shepherded the park sort of into its real existence uh, in just a brilliant way. And, and he's really someone I wish I could have written more about. Sounds like the topic of your next book. (laughs) (laughs) This book, however, the book that you should absolutely check out is From Swamp to Wetland, The Creation of Everglades National Park. Our guest today has been Dr. Chris Wilhelm. Dr. Wilhelm, thank you so much for your time and for your work about our precious Everglades. Thank you. That again was Dr. Chris Wilhelm an associate professor of history at the College of Coastal Georgia and the author of the book, From Swamp to Wetland, The Creation of Everglades National Park. I do encourage you to read the book. You can pick it up at your local bookseller. We always encourage you to buy from local booksellers like Books and Books here in Miami. uh, Or check out your local library, um, as well as your larger purchasers like Barnes & Noble or Amazon. I would also encourage you to check out last month's episode about the dedication of Everglades National Park 
it was actually that episode that made me aware of Dr. Wilhelm's book, and now you're aware of it too. I hope you enjoyed this episode, but I do want to let you know it's technically a bonus episode. We have another episode coming out later this month on a subject specifically tied to an event in January in Miami. I think you're really going to like it. We're going to have the chance to talk to another author about their book on the events related to the topic that we'll be focusing on. And uh, yeah, it's a busy month here around this day in Miami history. To make sure you know exactly what's going on, make sure you follow us on your preferred social media platform at This Day Miami Pod. And follow us on your preferred podcast platform so that whenever we drop a new episode, it comes right into your feed. So until next time, thank you so much for listening. And I've been Matthew Bunch. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.